Well, I, of course, want to extend a happy Father's Day to the fathers in the room and those of you who um, uh, have dads who are elsewhere. Don't forget to uh, call your dad today and wish him happy Father's Day. And so it's a funny thing being a dad, isn't it? Um, you know, you just, you just don't imagine it. It looks one way in your mind before you have kids, and then when you actually do it in real time, so much more challenging and joyful than you would have, would have ever expected. And, and you know, I'm, I am I'm keenly aware, more than you realize probably, that, that Father's Day doesn't hold the same connotations for everybody. I get that. Even, even a room just this size, I, I know that there was a whole spectrum of feelings about fathers on Father's Day. Some dismal and delightful, some painful and pleasurable, and everywhere in between, which means that preaching a sermon about fathers on Father's Day is a daunting task. And I know that many of you have had or do currently have imperfect but wonderful fathers who love Christ and who treasure his word and who uh, put him on display and, and or who are models of, of love and affection and sacrifice and, and you have nothing but warm regard and high respect and love and affection for your dad and, and he's one of those gifts of sovereign grace of whom this world is not worthy and, and I so long, I long to be a dad like that because that's possible by the grace of Christ But again, having said that, I know that's not everyone's experience. And so the whole mention of fathers on Father's Day brings a whole range of emotions, which means I have a very delicate needle to thread here this morning. And then for those of you who are fathers, I also know how how Father's Day sermons typically go. I, I, I think they try to be encouraging. I think they try to be inspiring. But oftentimes they can sort of meander, just veer into this sort of reprimanding lecture for 45 minutes where you're called to suck it up and do better and, and get your act together and lead your family. And that's true, you do need to suck it up and get your act together and lead your family like Christ loves the church. And yet I just find that guilt doesn't inspire a lot of long-term passion to change. And then added to that, there's the other additional element of everyone in the room who's not a father, immediately when they find out that I'm about to preach a sermon to fathers on Father's Day, they immediately begin to disengage, which makes sense, right? If you're not a dad, then you know that everything you're about to hear for the next 45 minutes is going to be almost completely irrelevant to your life. And so what that means is I am keenly aware this morning that preaching two fathers on Father's Day, the odds are profoundly stacked against me. Or are they? They're not. They're not because my aim, my agenda this morning is not just to inspire fathers and future fathers, but everyone else in the room to have a God-enthralled vision of all things. To grip your souls with the awesome potential of a life that causes ripple effects into eternity. And to do that, I have, I have enlisted the help of a man named Jonathan Edwards. And, and who is Jonathan Edwards? Who he is is an 18th century pastor theologian who made costly and dangerous resolutions for his life. The ripple effects of which we are still feeling even this day some 262 years later. And when I say that he made resolutions, I don't mean he made New Year's resolutions. I mean he made, I'm talking about convictions. I'm saying that he wrote 70 do or die head on the chopping block convictions that were designed to chart a a course for his entire life. I mean, these things were like a spiritual compass for his soul. And this morning, the object of our meditation, the object of our contemplation will be these 70 resolutions that Edwards wrote 200 years before any of us be, even before any of us were born, because you have to understand that these resolutions that he wrote are piercingly relevant, not just for dads, but for everybody who names the name of Christ. And so strangely, the weirdest Father's Day sermon in the history of the church, this morning what you're going to hear is a mix of history and theology and biography, but mostly, mostly this will be an exposition of the 70 resolutions that Edwards wrote as a college student between 1722 and 1723. And the reason why these are worth our time on Father's Day is because of how profound these resolutions really are. 
They are devotionally rich. They are theologically profound. They are insanely practical. And they are the very kinds of resolutions that you should make for your lives also. See, in 1722, Jonathan Edwards showed up to New York City to attend college. And yet the thing of it is, he had been born in the Connecticut River Valley. He grew up in the Connecticut River Valley. He never even left the Connecticut River Valley until he showed up to New York City for college. And so there he is in New York City and, and all alone, without mom or dad paying his bills, monitoring his phone, without a schedule and a structure defined for him, without expectations, without parental guidance and, and accountability, ready to start a life independently as his own man. And what does he do with his time? He sits down and he writes out 70 resolutions that were designed to chart a course for his entire life. You see, he knew, he knew that all of life was to be lived for the glory of God and these resolutions were how he was going to do that practically. And so again, it's going to be the most unusual, bizarre Father's Day sermon you've ever heard in your life and yet I'm really okay with that because all I want for you is like Edwards to have a God-enthralled vision of all things. Because that right there, that's the secret to fatherhood and motherhood and manhood and womanhood and childhood and everything else in life. And that is how to live a life that causes ripple effects into eternity. So here's where we're going. This morning, dads, future dads, and everybody else, I want you to make four resolutions this morning. And not just resolutions, but four costly and dangerous resolutions that you must make both to, to maximize your pleasure and your impact, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's where we're going. Four costly and dangerous resolutions that you must make to maximize your impact and your pleasure, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And yet there's a catch. There's a catch. Before we even see one of those resolutions, we have to find out exactly who Jonathan Edwards is. And so that brings me first to an abbreviated biography of Jonathan Edwards. And it's in in your notes. I don't have anything there, but I'll, I'll tell you about him. Although Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703 and died in 1758, which means he died at 55 years old, that's not old. His life and his sermons and his books and his theological influence continue to have profound impact centuries later. Which is really ironic, seeing as though he was just a small-town Connecticut pastor for 23 years in a church that had 600 people. That's 200 people less than the church I came from in Washington. He, after 23 years, he was kicked out of his church, and he, he became a missionary to the Indians. He and his wife, Sarah, reared 11 faithful children, all of whom loved and treasured Christ. He was not a dynamic personality at all. I mean, he was considered by many to be a bit stiff and awkward, a pleasant man to be sure, but hardly the life of the party. He worked and he labored without the luxury of electricity or computers or internet or email or even even sufficient pens or paper. And yet, and yet, this man led one of the greatest spiritual awakenings in the history of America. He wrote theological books and works that are so breathtakingly clear and powerful that they would stagger you. And in 1741, he preached what is perhaps the most famous sermon in the history of the world called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. The sermon is incredible. Don't, don't, let the title, don't let the title fool you. Far from being grib and grim and morbid, this thing is gripping and magnificent. And what's interesting is that in in America, every Sunday, there are some 100,000 sermons preached. Every Sunday in America, 100,000 sermons every Sunday. And yet over the last 400 years, only one of those sermons can be said to be truly famous, and it is Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've said this before so many times. Sarah has asked me, well, how's your sermon coming along? To which I reply, well... It's not sinners in the hands of an angry God, but they'll have to do. And I'm not the only one who feels this way about Edwards. One writer called him the foremost pastor and theologian in the history of America. 
His biographer, George Marsden, said that he was the most brilliant out of all American theologians. Encyclopedia Britannica, which is a non-Christian encyclopedia, by the way, said that Edwards, quote, is the greatest thinker America has ever produced on any subject. Even one of my own literature professors in, in college, a godless man who mocked Christianity in the classroom, he said this, this blew my mind. He said, Edwards was so brilliant that if anyone wanted to engage with him on a debate about the existence of God, they would lose. That's what you're dealing with here when you're talking about Jonathan Edwards. And, and, yet, and yet, be that as it may, Jonathan Edwards is just a man. A sinner saved by sovereign grace with deadlines and burdens and struggles and anxieties. He knew what it was like to have more things to do than time in which to do it. He knew the pull of his own flesh and the wickedness of his own heart and the propensity to drift from God as the treasure of his soul. And so what did he do? As an 18 and 19-year-old in 1722 and 1723, he sat down and wrote out resolutions, Bible-saturated resolutions that would set a trajectory for the rest of his life. And he read them every week at the end of every month at the end of every year and he did so for the rest of his life because you know he wasn't always a college student he was a husband father of 11 kids an extremely demanding job as the lone pastor of a church of 600 people who to be totally honest were kind of ornery and who needed his attention and in an age without any of our modern conveniences and so my point is what this man has to say about the christian life is worthy of our attention and our imitation so let's go to the resolutions shall we costly and dangerous resolution number one You must live for what is ultimate. You must live ultimately. And by that I mean you need to resolve right now to live for what is ultimate. And what is ultimate is the glory of God itself. And you notice, and it's in your notes there, before Edwards even gets into his resolutions, notice he has a little preamble, a little introduction, and notice what he says in his introduction. He says, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. Don't, don't miss this. He says, I am sensible. I am aware that I am unable to do anything without God's help. You know what that is? That's a confession. That's a confession that on his own, by himself, he is nothing more than a spiritual cripple and a beggar of grace, which is exactly what we are also. See, what you have to understand about the Christian life is that it's not merely difficult. It is impossible. It's possible. See, as Christians, God has called us to labor for that which is his alone to give. Even the most basic goals of the Christian life are unquestionably beyond our reach. So if we're going to do this Christian thing, we have to understand at the outset that it's going to take supernatural power to do it. And you see, Edwards understood that. He understood perfectly well John 15, 5, when when Christ says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's just as true today as the day that we were converted. But you notice, notice what Edward says. He goes on, he says, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions. You see, beggars ask for money. Spiritual cripples ask for grace. See, Edwards knew that authentic life change and transformation, that a radical life that puts God on display can happen, can only happen as a result of sovereign grace. And you remember what grace is, don't you? You'd better know because if you miss this, you miss Christianity. Grace, you see, grace is the all-transforming power of Christ to do the impossible. 
In other words, grace is the power of God to do what God commands. In fact, God doesn't command you to do anything that he hasn't already provided the grace through Christ to obey. And so the answer then to your current sin struggles is not merely that you try harder not to sin, although that's probably true too, but that you plead for grace to do what God commands. Which brings us to the first resolution on the list, and it is staggering. Look what he says. Resolved. That I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good and profit and pleasure. Notice, he begins with the operative word resolved. What does it mean to be resolved? I mean, what is a resolution? Because no, it's true. A resolution is not a biblical word, but Edwards meant it in a biblical way. So what does he mean by a, a resolution? Well, what he meant was for Edwards, a resolution meant very simply that you were going to live for something bigger than yourselves. A resolution is a conviction about what must happen in your life, no matter what you must give up, no matter what you must sacrifice to have it. A resolution, you understand, has a prize at the end, the worth and value of which is worth anything that you have to sacrifice to obtain it. Don't you see? All a resolution is, is to radically reorient and prioritize your life around what God says is infinitely and eternally significant. That is a resolution. And I want you to make some of those today, dads and future dads and everybody else. And so the question is, what was the first resolution on the list for Jonathan Edwards? What did he say? And you know what it was. The glory of God was the first resolution. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to the glory of God. I mean, out of all the resolutions that could have topped the charts for Edwards, the glory of God was at the top of the list. And if you understand what the glory of God is, you'll plainly see that that should be the top resolution at the top of everybody's list. Because that is the question, what is the glory of God? What does it mean to live for the glory of God? Are you sure you want to know? Are you sure you want to know the answer? Because it's devastating in a good way. Because you see, in Scripture, that phrase, the glory of God, that's a, get this now, a summary way to describe the infinite worth and value of God because of the innumerable perfections that make him who he is. In other words, for God to be glorious is to take the full number of his attributes and the sum total at the bottom is an infinite worth and value. And what you have to understand about God is that his own glory is his aim, is his agenda, is his design in everything he does. Everything God does is designed to put his worth and value and beauty and supremacy on open display. And so, when it comes to us, What it means to live for the glory of God is that we do whatever it takes by God's grace to present, to portray, to reflect, and display God for the infinitely valuable treasure that he is. That's what it is. To reflect, portray, reveal, display God for the infinitely valuable treasure that he is. That is is what it means to live for the glory of God. That is ultimate because the glory of God is ultimate. And yet maybe that feels kind of nebulous because it has 10,000 applications and manifestations. And so let's put some meat on those bones. You see... Here's what it looks like. It's very practical to live for God's glory. You see, any time, get this now, any time you choose to obey God or to trust the word of God on any issue, whether it's in public or in private, you have then made a choice to glorify God. Very simple. You see, in making that decision, you have to understand what just transpired is that you have demonstrated his superior worth over the pleasure provided by that sin. 
even if no one sees it except God. Do you see? Bottom line, anytime you choose to obey the word of God on any issue, you are making a statement. You are saying that God is more precious and more satisfying than anything else. And that, you see, is what brings him glory. Because did you notice what Edward said? Look at the resolutions again. It's really intriguing. He says, Resolve that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. Here it is. And my own good and profit and pleasure. Why did he do that? Why, I asked, did he so quickly inject that part about his own good and profit and pleasure? I'll tell you why. Because God's glory and his pleasure are the exact same pursuit. Those are not mutually exclusive. In the Bible, there's no such thing as, well, golly, you can live for God's glory or you can live for your pleasure, but you can't have both. No, no. The Bible says, and Edward says, the way to live for your highest pleasure is to live for the glory of God. The more God is glorified, the more you are satisfied. And the more you are satisfied in Him, the more He is glorified in you. Don't you see? God's passion for His glory and His passion for my joy are not at odds because His passion for my joy is His passion for my joy in Him. So ask yourself, dads, do you want joy and pleasure, and satisfaction? Of course you do. It's what what everybody wants. That is what you were made for. And yet the, the answer is then not to deny your longings for pleasure, but then to pursue your highest pleasure in where the highest pleasure could possibly be found, namely in the infinite God of the universe. Tell me I'm wrong. If you're a Christian here this morning, those moments in your life when you were the happiest, when you were the most sold out for God, am I wrong? You were never more happy than when you were seeking to live for the glory of God. And if that does not sound appealing to you, if that does not sound appealing to you at all, you don't have salvation. But if you are in Christ, you know those times, those moments, those seasons when you were the most satisfied, when you were the most sold out for God. And so the question is, dads, are you happy this morning? Are you a happy father this morning? Are you a happy Christian this morning? Because if not, it very well could be because you have drifted from the essence of what it means to be a Christian and that you are not pursuing your highest pleasure in God as the treasure of your soul. And I'll just have you know that the glory of God fills Edward's resolution. I mean, this, this is everywhere. We don't have time to look at all of them, but number 2 and 4 and 23 and 27, all about the glory of God. They're actually in your notes. Everything Edwards did, everything Edwards did not do was driven by one consuming passion, namely the weight of the majesty of the glory of God. This meant everything to him. This was the centerpiece of his life, and it should be and must be the centerpiece of your lives also. And yet, having said that to you, I need to issue a warning. I just want you to know that if you're going to be one of those people who's going to live for the glory of God, I just want you to know that if if you're serious about that, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you big time to live for the glory of God. I mean, the price tag might be small now, but it's going to increase every year of your life to be a man, to be a woman who lives for the glory of God. It's going to cost you, and it's going to cost you big time, and and it might cost you popularity or possessions or position or promotions. But just remember that one thing they can never get their hands on is the pleasure, the infinite pleasure you will experience in paradise forever. And that's resolution number one. You must 
resolve to live ultimately. Resolution number two, you must resolve to live eternally. You must resolve to live eternally. I used this just like three weeks ago in the Daniel series, but it's so appropriate here. I, I, I love the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And you know how the plot goes, that Ebenezer Scrooge was a nasty, greedy man who didn't give a rip about anybody. And you know how the story is. He's visited in the night by three ghosts. There was the ghost of Christmas past who showed him why he was so miserable. There was the ghost of Christmas present who showed him why, how he made others miserable. And then there was the ghost of Christmas future who showed him what his life would eventually become. And what this final ghost had to show him about the future was so significant and so life-transforming that it literally changed everything about his life in the present. He was a changed man, and that is exactly how the future functioned for Jonathan Edwards. So you have to understand, the brevity of life and the reality of eternity produced in him a a kind of passion. It produced in him a kind of urgency and intentionality that caused him to live his life with intentionality in the present. The flames of hell, the fragrance of heaven changed everything. For instance, look at resolution number 55. It's in your notes. Resolution number 55. He says, resolved. Resolved. Get this. To endeavor to my utmost to act as if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. I mean, get a load of this guy. To act as though he had already seen the happiness of heaven and the horrors of hell. What does that mean? What does that mean to live your life as if you had already seen heaven and hell with your very own eyes? Do do you see what he's trying to do here? What is this, some kind of mind game? Some kind of Jedi mind trick where he sort of fools, manipulates himself into some sort of morbid emotional hysteria? No, no, not that. It's that he had meditated so deeply and so long on the reality of eternity from Scripture that it profoundly shaped his perspectives in the present. In other words, he realized that what you do in life echoes into eternity. We all, every single one of us, have a meeting scheduled. And we don't know when that meeting is going to be, but it's unavoidable. And at that meeting, it will be announced where our eternity will be based on what we did with Jesus Christ. You see, the realities of heaven and hell produced in Edwards a kind of urgency and intentionality that caused him to seize every single moment as if it were his last. And so the question I have for you is, do you feel that? Do you feel the weight of the brevity of life and the reality of eternity? Do you feel the reality of the fact that what you do in life echoes into eternity? That you're surrounded by people who will either be eternally miserable or eternally happy forever, and it all depends on what they do with Jesus Christ. Look at resolution number 50. I love this. Resolved. I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. What is that? That's a mouthful. What is he saying there? What he's saying is, what he means is, if you were a glorified human being living in eternity, would you have just done the thing that you just did? Or you are about to do. That's what he means. And again, this doesn't mean that you can't watch Netflix or that you can't play games on your phone. That just doesn't mean any of that. There is a way appropriately to enjoy hobbies and entertainment and even to do those things for the glory of God. I'm not one of those guys, but the question is, are your priorities and passions and perspectives and purpose in life profoundly shaped by the weighty reality that there is a heaven or hell to win or lose? And just so you know, living like this would not in any way make you a gloomy, morbid, miserable person disconnected from real life. It's just the opposite. Look at resolution number 22. This, this is unbelievable. 
He says, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself, notice the word, as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, vehemence, yea, violence of which I am capable or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. (laughs) When I first read that, as a single guy years ago, just a fire went through my soul because what that meant was I will fight as hard as I can to experience as much pleasure as I possibly can. Not only in this life, but also in the one to come. What did he mean? Well, what was he after here? Only a truth that so few Christians are willing to accept, namely, that God will reward you for everything done out of obedience or allegiance to Christ. He's talking about reward here. He's talking about treasure in heaven here. I mean, you don't deserve it, but it's still a reward. It's called conditional grace. And you see, the Bible is clear that being rewarded by Christ is the exact right motive you should have for everything you do. This is precisely what Paul means in Ephesians 6, 8 when he says, every good thing you do, this you will receive back from the Lord. You see, reward is not sub-Christian, it is most authentically Christian. I mean, isn't this what C.S. Lewis put his finger on? When he made his famous quote, indeed, he says, if we consider, and this is actually in your notes because I want you to have this, know this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would then seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, he says fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy, infinite joy, infinite joy. Are you hearing this? Infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so dads, future dads, and everybody else. If you get this, if you really believe that Christ will reward you, and then even that Christ ultimately himself is that reward, then this cannot but help but transform the way you live your lives in the present. And so far, that's two. Two costly and dangerous resolutions. You must resolve to live ultimately. You must resolve to live Eternally and costly and dangerous resolution number three, you must resolve to live urgently. You must resolve to live urgently or, put it another way, with intentionality. I'm not super old, but the older I get, I do realize that time, time is the most precious commodity that I have and I never feel like I've got enough. And what you have to understand is that even before time began, get this now, God portioned out to every single one of us the exact amount of time that we would have to labor for his work and for his kingdom, for his glory. And you do not get one second more or less than what he originally ordained for you. You see, we all receive a fixed income of time, as it were, and what you must do for God must be done within that time, and the clock is ticking even as we speak. You see, moments are like coins in our pocket, and once we spend it, it is gone forever. And Edwards understood that. He understood the inexhaustible value of time and how it could be spent in such a way to maximize our lives or to waste our lives So look, for instance, at resolution number five, also in your notes, resolved. Never to lose one moment of time, but even to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Do you feel the urgency? Not only never to lose one moment of time, but even to improve every moment of time. What what is he talking about? He means you just take the normal, 
everyday things that you do without even thinking and then do them in a way that gives them eternal significance. That's what he means. For instance, I, I've used this before. How, how would you like an extra half hour, 45 minutes a week to get stuff done? Would that be helpful to you? An extra 45 minutes a week? Might be helpful, right? Well, at the risk then of sounding invasive and inappropriate, let me suggest to you that the next time you sit down to use the toilet, don't just scroll with your phone on social media. Rather, seize those moments. Seize those moments to read a book that stirs your soul. Or if you're still in school, literally do an assignment. Just don't tell the instructor that you did it while you were sitting there. Or um, brainstorm ministry possibilities. Or pray for lost people. That'd be a win, right? That's, that's what we're after here. When you eat lunch during the day, don't just eat lunch by yourself or only with your friends, but with a co-worker who needs Christ. Don't just drive in your car. Learn a foreign language while driving in your car. Or listen to sermons that captivate your soul. When you brush your teeth, don't just brush your teeth, but brush your teeth with a book in your hands or while memorizing scripture or anything, something. I mean, this is exactly what Edwards is talking about. He's talking about redeeming the most mundane moments of our life and then doing them in a way that gives them eternal significance. That is what he's after. Look at resolution number six. This is so simple, but but it's staggering. He says, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Oh, church, you've got one life. One. One short, brief vapor of a life before you step off the planet into eternity. You know that, right? Just get one. And as long as there is breath in you, as long as you have breath, God calls us to to live this life with all of our might for the things that matter most to eternity. I mean, isn't this what Paul was after in Philippians 1.21 when he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's exactly what he meant. Piper put it like this. He says, life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great. Hell is too horrible. Eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. Now, again, hear me very carefully. There is no problem, I repeat, no problem in seeking your enjoyment in things like movies or TV shows or golf or even career or hobbies. I mean, there, there is a way to enjoy all of those things for the glory of God. And so the question is not whether or not you will enjoy those things, but whether you will enjoy them in such a way that when you are on your deathbed, you will be filled with regret. Because regret is a brutal thing isn't it? See, there's nothing more painful than being stretched on the torture rack of regret because you can't go back and change the past. You can't go back and undo the things that you have done. It will be too late. So the cruelty of of living in a fallen world is that we've got to live in the beds that we have made. There's a running joke in my wife's family is there's some mistakes you don't make. <laughs> and you'd have to be there to find it funny. But, but there is truth to that, aren't there? There are some mistakes you don't make. But see, here's the thing. One of the things that makes Jesus Christ so glorious, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has come to the planet in such a way to make a way where we don't have to live our lives with regret. And you see, you have to understand, dads, dads, in his word, God has made known to us, God has revealed to us not to, how to not squander the opportunity of fatherhood because it is the opportunity of a lifetime. And he has revealed in the text what are the ABCs of fatherhood. Not a list, necessarily. Not a, not a formula, a foolproof formula, but how to be a dad without regret. See, as a dad... You adore Christ. 
You be satisfied in his word. You cling to his grace. You disciple your kids. You eat together as a family. You fight sin to the death. You get your family to church. You have dates with your wife. You invite people into your home. You jump at every chance to serve the saints. You keep accountable to someone. You love your wives as Christ loved the church. You mentor a younger man. You never discipline out of anger. You open your Bible to your family. You pray like crazy. You quickly repent when you are wrong. You redeem the time. You shepherd your family. You think hard about the Bible utilize the wisdom of your elders vow to be faithful in marriage work hard I cheated here exclaim God's wonders in creation yearn for holiness and above all things be zealous be zealous for the glory of God as the centerpiece of your life that is fatherhood and that's a tall order and one that none of us none of us can fulfill And so that brings us again to the very secret of the Christian life. To plead with grace, for grace to do what God commands. And that's a request that God is thrilled to answer. And so that brings us to the fourth and final resolution. For dads, for future dads, for everybody else. See, if you're going to maximize your impact and your pleasure, not only in this life, but also in the one to come, you must, number four, resolve to live violently. Resolve to live violently. Because you see, one of the reasons, one of the reasons why we oftentimes fail at putting sin to death in our lives is not because we don't have good intentions, but because we're not violent enough. We're not savage enough enough. We're not brutal enough. We're not Viking enough. We're not kamikaze enough with our own hearts. You see, you see, oftentimes our failure to conquer sin in our lives is due to the fact that we never actually deal with the root of our sin, but only the symptoms of our sin on the surface. This is what we do. You see, when the noxious weeds of sin spring up in our lives, we don't take the sharp, jagged tools of Scripture and rip it out by the root. We instead take cute little garden shears and give it a little manicure, give it a little trim and call it good. And then before we know it, the garden of our hearts is wild and overgrown with sin. And then we find ourselves doing things we never dreamed we'd do. And you might not be there yet, you will be, you will be, if we do not do the kinds of things Edwards did with the sin in his life. Look at resolution number 24. He says, resolved, whenever I do any conspicuously evil action, to trace it back, notice, to trace it back till I come to the original cause, and then both carefully endeavor to do so no more, and to fight and pray with all of my might against the original of it. Do you see what he did here? Whenever he committed any conspicuously evil action, knew he shouldn't have done it, did it anyway, can't change it, there it is. He wasn't merely content to confess that sin, but to go on a search and kill mission into his heart to find the original root of that sin. Do you see? There's a difference. And you see, that's precisely what we have got to do with the sin in our lives. And let's just take the most ugly and most obvious. Right? They're not the most ugly, but they seem like they are. Like Take, take lust and porn, for example. Th- those are bad. They're bad. But have you ever trace them to the cause lurking beneath because it is badder. Anger and bitterness, those are a big deal to be sure. Those are a big deal. But have you ever gotten to the root issue lurking beneath that's causing the anger and the bitterness? Because that's a bigger deal. Or pride, or criticism, or slander, or gossip, or laziness, or anxiety, or discontentment, or greed, or anything. I mean, we're so willing to confess the obvious in safe, general terms. But our failure to see real victory in our lives is because we have not lifted the rock to see underneath what's causing the sin. Do you see? 
And yet, at this point, you probably want to know, right? how do you do what Edwards is talking about? How, how, do you, how do you actually get to the root of your sin? Well, here's what you do. Or as it, so after you sin, or as Edwards put it, whenever you do any conspicuously evil action, what you do is you need to ask yourself three provocative, penetrating questions. Here they are. What did I do? What did I want? What did I not believe? So let's take those one at a time. Number one, what did I do? In other words, whenever you blow it, whenever you sin, you just pause and you say, hold on a second, what did I just do? And, and you call it, not as you see it, you call it as the Bible sees it. Don't, don't use replacement words. Well, I was frustrated, if it's actually anger. Call it as the Bible sees it. You just call a spade a spade. to be brutally blood and guts honest with what just happened. What did I do? Question number two, what did I want? In other words, what was I really after when I went there? What was the payoff for me? What was I hungering for more than anything else when I gave into that issue? And then number three, what did I not believe? In other words, what is it about Christ that I didn't believe that made giving into that sin so incredibly easy? Because you have to understand, Christ is four things. At least four things. And each one of our sins can be traced back to not believing one or more of these things. For instance, Christ is satisfying. Way more satisfying than sin. Number two, Christ is sufficient. He is enough for you, and he himself is what you need for your highest happiness. Number three, Christ is supreme. He is a treasure of infinite worth, and he puts the pleasure of sin to absolute shame. And number four, Christ is sovereign, easily able to deliver you in real time from the temptations that afflict you. And so when you sin, which of those four things did you not believe about Christ? Did you see how freeing this is? It's freeing, freeing our highest pleasure to live for the glory of God. You see, what made Edwards taste the pleasure of a holy life is that he would not let one day pass without doing, recons- without doing, without doing open heart surgery on his own soul. We're almost done. Look at resolution number 56. It's the last one here. Resolve never to give over nor in the least to slacken my fight with my corruptions. Never in the least to slacken my fight. I will hit and hit and hit my heart or my sin. I will hit it again and again and again. I will never relent to fight with my corruptions, however unsuccessful I may be. You see, he understood something that we all oftentimes tragically forget, namely that life is war. I mean, Paul told Timothy twice, didn't he? Fight the good fight of faith. We remember what Paul said in Ephesians 6, to put on the full armor of God to resist in the evil day. What day is that? Today. Peter told his readers in chapter 2, he says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which do what? Which wage war against the soul. Paul told the Romans in in chapter 8, verse 13, none of this is in your notes, by the way. In chapter 8, verse 13, he says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul told the Colossians, chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore, put to death the members of your earthly body. J.C. Ryle put it like this. He said, a true Christian, a true Christian, notice his language, is one who not only has peace of conscience, but war within. A holy violence a conflict, 
A warfare, a fight, a soldier's life, a wrestling, these are spoken of as characteristic of the true Christian. He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. Bottom line, God wants a holy people. God wants holy dads. But again, you have to understand holiness is not merely being moral or keeping the rules. It is war. And you need to to know this, and this is the most important thing I have to say about holiness and sanctification. This is always what gets missed. You have to understand that real, authentic life change and transformation, if you are in Christ, is not merely a possibility, but a profound and inevitable reality. But you're going to have to be violent to get there. So I'll close with this. Those are four. Those are others I could have given you. I had six originally. I cut two out, so you're welcome. But those are four, four costly and dangerous resolutions to maximize your impact and your pleasure, not only in this life, but also in the one to come. And, and the thing about these resolutions is that they are necessary, they're costly, they're revealing, they're dangerous, they're hard and painful and sometimes even excruciating and they might just even cost you everything. But oh, the pleasure they provide at the end, even for eternity, is worth anything that you lose to keep them. Let's pray. Oh Christ, we desperately need grace. Lord, all we are, all we are, O Lord, is a human receptacle of need. Lord, we are not self-replenishing streams of power. We are, at best, leaky buckets. And you don't hold that against us. You call us to depend on you, O Lord, the very secret of the Christian life, to depend on you, to cast our, our ourselves upon you for your endless resources. And so, Lord, I just pray, I pray not just for the dads, but especially for the dads in this room, Lord. I pray that you would help them to to do the ABCs of, of fatherhood, that they would adore you and they would trust in your word and they would cling to you and they would pour into their kids and they would immerse themselves in, in life in the local church and, and that they would avail themselves of every resource, every opportunity to grow and to change and, and to trust you for your grace. And so, Lord, I pray for families, Lord. Pray for families with dads who lead and who lead by loving and exemplifying Christ. And Lord, I, I know that families that, yeah, Lord, I just, I, I just, we look to you, we plead with you, we ask for you to make us a church of healthy singles and families who do the kinds of things that Edwards is talking about here, that we would live ultimately, eternally, urgently, and violently. And may you receive all the glory for it. In Christ's name, amen.